Okay, let's go to Romans 10 tonight, please. Romans, the 10th chapter. Really, we are, in the midweeks, we're kind of moving through Romans 10 and 11, summarizing some important points. Sunday mornings, I want to devote to Romans 8, which will get us up to the center. Then we'll be moving on from Romans Somewhere before 2020 or 2030. Romans 10, 1. I want to look at the chapter again in its totality. But I might do a little something first. Uh, Let's just pray so I can think about it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fidelity of your son, Jesus Christ, the basis of our justification in your eyes. It's a fidelity that I see as a pastor in this congregation, as a member of it, and as an overseer in it. And I thank you. It's remarkable what you have done in the saints in this small flock in pouring out the love of God in our hearts, in increasing our love as our knowledge of your Son, and as our discernment increases, as the banks for that river of love. We thank you tonight for this opportunity. And may this not just be another time we meet to be taught, but a time for our Lord Jesus Christ, to be revealed. Father, I know that it's always up to you when you will reveal your Son in us in extraordinary ways. I wouldn't even be presumptuous to ask you to do so. But if you're willing to, please feel free to, in a remarkable way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. First verse I thought of, Speaking tonight of Christ as the telos, the Greek word is telos, means really two things. It means the end in the sense of termination and the fulfillment. So it means fulfillment and end. Let's just say fulfillment and termination and Christ is the telos. Telos. And I thought of our end in Revelation chapter 22, 13. The second to the last time Jesus describes himself or identifies himself, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Ta telos. Now, in Romans chapter 10, this is probably the most controversial part of our study because I've decided to be very bold and and step out here because I've already done this on a certain Sunday morning. I preached the entire message in a preaching mode, but I want to reiterate this in a teach more of a teaching way tonight. First of all, and I don't think we'll get through it all tonight, but Romans 10, 1 to 4, is clearly Paul. 
speaking. It's Paul. Romans 10.5, Paul lets Moses speak, and he speaks Leviticus 18.5. This is a really hot-button hot verse used by the missionary opponents of Paul in the churches in Galatia. They in, entered into an incursion in Paul's churches, brought another gospel, and Paul was never more enraged than when he saw the churches in Galatia, three of them at least, in danger of being drawn away and deserting to another gospel. So, Romans 10.5, Moses. Romans 10.6, all the way to 17, is not really Paul speaking. In fact, he says, he introduces this. It's like Paul's the director of a production that we call Romans the Epistle. He calls this personification of the righteousness of faith. We'll just call it, let's call him RF. If that's your initials, I'm sorry. But righteousness of faith, the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith, he said, speaks this way. And really, if you notice the structure of this whole thing, and you can see it in your own eye, with your own eyes, and I don't ask you to go my way on this. I don't ask you to go my way on this. I hope that you'll form your own conviction. This is my conviction in interpreting this. And I don't have any, I don't have much behind me on this as far as other scholarship. But all the way through 17, and it's not until 18 that Paul again speaks. So he's got the first four verses ending up with Christ is the end, telos of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Which means everyone who has come to believe in Christ perceives that Christ is the end of the law as a means for justification. But I think he's also teaching here that Christ is faithfulness is the end of any act of human faith being a means of justification, but rather human faithfulness that God gives us or participation is the God approved livingness. You'll notice then that in 10, six to 17, this righteousness of faith, the personified character speaks. Then in 10, 18, what do you have? But I say, but I say again, Paul speaks again, the last four verses, 10, 18, to 21. You'll find that Paul is extraordinarily universalistic in his take on things because he says there seems to be an objection at the end of the righteousness of faith. He seems to be saying that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, which is a, a quotation of Joel. But we've got to remember that scriptures can make a case for almost anything. In fact, James seems to be making a case. And there's just as good a case that can be made in the scriptures of justification by works as there can be justification by human faith. Just as good of a case. I think what James is doing ingeniously is not saying that we're justified by works as opposed to justified by faith, but that we are, the scriptures can make a case for either one, but neither one is the real issue. We're really justified 
in the eyes of God by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So Romans 10, 6 to 17, and I notice this when people quote this in opposition to God being all in all. And in fact, I read it recently where our friend Mars did a marvelous top 10 reasons why Jesus will save all did a marvelous, actually 14 reasons. And then I read some of the reactions to it. And one of them was, well, you're a heretic and you're this and you're that, which is the one we all get that one. That's old, but they quoted Romans 10 as if believing in Christ means salvation. And that in implies that not believing means damnation. And so they hit with that. They always do. And it's amazing how superficial that accusation is and how superficial that accusation has any understanding whatsoever of what Paul's saying here. So we have the first four verses, Paul. We have Moses speaking on this stage in 10.5, the righteousness of the law. And then we have the righteousness of faith. But Paul doesn't speak about the righteousness of faith, human faith. He speaks about the righteousness of God. And you can't distinguish or you can't segregate the righteousness of faith from the righteousness of God. What if you do? What if you did do that? Then you'd have a kind of a reformation idea that human beings are justified by their own personal believing, their active believing, and those who do not believe are ultimately damned, which is not what Paul's teaching. Paul talks about the righteousness of God. Moses talks about the righteousness of the law. And this righteousness of faith person talks about a, the righteousness that comes from faith. But it's segregated from the righteousness of God. The gospel doesn't reveal the righteousness of faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That's the whole central piece of Romans, Romans 1.17. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalyptically revealed from faith for faith. And we'll explain a little bit more. I haven't really done my final translation of that yet. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith, ekpistios, to faith, ace piston in Romans 117. Now, here's the question I'm asking. What if we were to skip the of God part and go directly from faith and understand this to mean that the righteousness of human believing or human faithfulness is what justifies? This would skip the whole essence of the gospel of God about his son which reveals the righteousness of God from the faithfulness of Christ for faith to believe that one is justified by Christ's faithfulness. In other words, our faith that God kindles in us when he apocalyptically reveals his son, our faith perceives that Christ's faithfulness has justified us. His faithfulness that culminates in, concludes in, climaxes in his obedience or his faithful obedience 
to the death of the cross, to the extent of the death of the cross. But if you skip that of God part, it's a pretty big part to skip. And you just look at righteousness from faith, then I think Paul has preempted with a preemptive strike here, the whole idea of justification by human believing over and against justification by an act of God in Christ. Now, this is, a, this is the thing that's been the hardest to develop. So the faithfulness that justifies is the faithfulness that climaxed in death by crucifixion, by which Christ, God's lamb, took away the sin of the world. There the word, the sin of the world, means all the acts of complicity with sin as an apocalyptic or make that a cosmic power. All of creation's complicity, willing complicity with that cosmic adverse power was taken away by the Lamb of God. Taken away. He was the propitiation, make that expiation really, the taking away of the sins, not ours only. Speaking of those who believed but of the sins of the whole world. Now, Paul is allowing the righteousness, which is called ekpistios, from faith, apart from God's act in Christ to speak, in Romans 10, 6 through 17. It's amazing, and one of the most respected scholars that I have read in the past several years I respected his take on what is known as a new perspective until I found out that what he was quoting as his own doctrine was the doctrine of the opposing missionaries against Paul about a certain thing called justification. And that's, I'll tell you, that's been the battle of the whole of Romans for me. In fact, it's the battle of the whole several decades of teaching. Here, I think we also have a potential agreement with James' epistle against the notion of justification by works. James ingeniously pits the notion of justification by human faith against justification by human works. And so he says, oh, so Abraham was justified by faith alone? Or was, just, was he justified by works when he offered his son Isaac? In other words, I can take the scriptures and make a case for justification by human works. And I can take the scriptures and make a case for justification by human faith. Or I can see the scriptures as Paul sees them and seeing that justification doesn't come by human works or human believing, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, the righteous act of God in Christ. What was he obedient to? What was Jesus Christ obedient to? You say the father's will. True. But what was the father's will? The father's will was to save all mankind. The Father's will is saving toward all creation. So Jesus Christ was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion because only that faithful obedience would effect or bring about God's will, which is the salvation 
of all mankind. And it has brought it about. It has brought it about. Now, a lot of Mars's attackers, for example, and I'm just defending my brother here tonight for a little bit. A lot of his attackers are going to be very embarrassed at the appearance of Christ. And hopefully that embarrassment won't last too long. Because really, it's an attack against the gospel. They don't know what they're doing. So it'll just be a moment. Now, justification is neither by human faith alone or human works. As Paul says, like that, he says, neither circumcision or uncircumcision, anything at all. That was a terrible thing to say to his Jewish brethren. Circumcision is nothing. It's nothing at all. Neither is uncircumcision. What was he saying? Keeping the law is nothing. Observing the works of the law is nothing. It's nothing. It amounts to nothing. In fact, I'll tell you Galatians, he says, when he gets things are getting really hot in Galatians, if you were circumcised under the pressure of these new missionary opponents, Christ will profit you nothing at all. Christ will profit you nothing. So later on, he says, how about this? Circumcision is nothing. You're saying Christ amounts to nothing if you submit to circumcision as a means of justification. So here, however, Paul is letting the righteousness of faith speak for a long time. And he quotes verses. Both examples that James brings, interesting, Rahab he brings as one example. A prostitute. In fact, she wasn't just a prostitute. She was a madam of a a house of prostitution. The madam. The head prostitute. And it's interesting that her case points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Christ's faithfulness. Because the spies whom she protected and her act by which she was justified was lying to the Jericho authorities because she was harboring the spies from Israel. So I guess you're justified by lying. Abraham was justified by works, by offering his son Isaac. I guess you're justified by offering your child in sacrifice, child sacrifice. James did that deliberately to show that he's not talking about a justification by works and that neither justification by human faith or justification by human works is an issue. I think James was far more ingenious than we think he was. And so his epistle is not, according to Luther, a straw-y epistle, which he went back on later after he said that anyways. But Abraham and Rahab, what did Rahab have to do? The spies said, drop a cord, a rope. It's not a thread. How could you see a red thread? We're going to come through and blow this place to pieces, except the house where there's a red thre- a thread. Let's, what do you got? You got some serious night vision goggles that can pick. It's a cord, a rope, a red rope. It's significant. 
because it points to the blood of the lamb that justified her house. It has a remembrance of the Passover lamb whose blood was on the doorposts of the people of Israel in Goshen so that they were saved when the angel of death came through town. Abraham's case is even more striking. So Rahab is the consummate Gentile, the Goyim. She's the consummate Gentile. She's a pagan prostitute. Abraham is the consummate Jew. He is the guy for the Jews. But what does his activity end in? Him saying to Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. So both examples, Rahab the consummate Gentile and Abraham the consummate Jew, point in each their own way to salvation by the Lamb of God and therefore justification by the faithful death of Christ. The scarlet cord or rope that Rahab hung from her window was a reminder of the blood on the doorposts in Goshen in Egypt. And the promise of Abraham that God would provide himself a lamb and the sparing of Isaac pointed poignantly to the only son of God whom God did not spare, but freely gave up and handed over in behalf of us all. There's the heart of the heart of Romans. God is for us. For us all. Paul's whole argument comes right down to this. God is for us all. Demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And him crucified and raised. God is for us all. Roman saints. So why are you against each other? God is for us all. You're not very much conformed. Into the image of God. If you're not for your brother. And for your sister. In Christ. If God is for us all, then why are there groups pitted one against another? Now, I've said this before. This is just an intro, but I've treated this entire chapter, Romans 10, in a preaching mode on a certain Sunday. It was after I watched that movie, Come Sunday, and watched the character who played Oral Roberts quote Romans 10, 9, and 10 and leave the hero of the story kind of dumbfounded. So I said, let me answer that. Romans 10 highlights not only the distinction between the faithfulness of Christ and the works of the law, but also between the faithfulness of Christ and the activity of human believing as the basis of salvation. Now, what, follow this if you can. Romans 10, 1 to 4, and I'm going to try to look at it as a whole without getting minute in the exegesis until another time. Romans 10, 1 to 4 contrasts God's righteousness, that which is what? Apocalyptically revealed in the gospel, by the gospel, Romans 1, 17. Romans 10, 4, 1 to 4, where Paul contrasts, ends up with what I call the big 10, 4. Contrasts God's righteousness with human righteousness, which is what Israel in the main, at that time, Israel in the main, had tried to establish by observance of Moses' law. By doing so, 
He says, it's strange and ironic that by trying to establish their own righteousness, they have not been compliant with God's own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So by doing so, they're not compliant with God's righteousness. The phrase to everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, Christ is the end. There it is again. The telos, T-E-L-O-S. Christ is the telos of the law for righteousness. It doesn't just say the end of the law. It says the end of the law for righteousness. The end of the law as a means to either justification or God-approved livingness. It doesn't lead there. It leads to death. It leads to wrath. The law works wrath. Those who are trying to find righteousness by the works of the law not only get frustrated, they get angry at people who aren't trying like they are. It's kind of like fundamentalist Christianity today. They call themselves fundamentalists. The only problem is many of them have missed the fundamental Christ and him crucified as the basis of human justification. Faith, in other words, understands or perceives or discerns or gets it gets it faith understands that Christ's faithful death not only was a fulfillment of the law's demand for total love for God and for one's neighbor, but that Christ's faithful death was also the termination of the law as a means either for salvation or for rectitude, what I call God-approved livingness. Speaking from the standpoint of the subject here, not the object, but the subject, that is the one who believes, I'm the subject, I believe in Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ, I believe that my justification is through his faithfulness. That's what my faith tells me. My faith doesn't say, oh, you're justified by your faith. My faith, a gift from God, tells me I'm justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It also tells me that everybody else is. And so you get this thing that starts to bubble up in your soul. I think they call it uh, love. The love of Christ controls me because if one died for all, then all died. And when Christ died, he arose. And when he arose... He did because of the justification that he wrought through his death for all. So faith perceives that Christ's faithful death not only was a fulfillment of the law's demand for total love for God. And so that's where love, the law was fulfilled in Christ's act of love on the cross. So when he says to everyone that believes, he's speaking of the standpoint of the believer. To you who believe, Christ is the end of the law. It's the perception of faith that recognizes that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, Christ's faithful obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion resulted in justification, or in Paul's words, rectification and so the law observance of the law is no longer perceived as a means to attain justification or to establish one's own righteousness as a Jew who came to believe in Jesus Christ 
Paul himself no longer had any confidence in the flesh, he said. He no longer perceived the law either as a means of salvation or as the means of God-approved livingness. So in Romans 10, 1 to 4, Paul speaks. In the inclusio of this chapter, Romans 10, 18 to 21, so it's bracketed by two four-verse times when Paul speaks. He speaks again in 10, 18 to 21. In Romans 10, 5, he allows Moses to speak by citing a verse from Leviticus 18, 5 that became a hot-button verse in the fierce debate between Paul and his missionary opponents who were active among the churches in Galatia. This all happened before he wrote Romans, so he was prepared to write Romans with a little more of a cool demeanor. It is no doubt a strategic verse that his missionary opponent in Romans that Campbell calls the teacher with a capital T has used in support of his own nomistic or legalistic gospel or gospel of justification by works of the law. In Romans 10, 6 to 17, Paul, as a director of this production called Romans, the epistle, brings another actor on stage. And if we look carefully at this chapter, the speaker called the righteousness of faith, whom we call RF, is giving the speaking part. He's given a part. In this section, the rectitude brought about by faith is dealt with apart from its basis in the righteousness of God. Now, here's where the problem lies. It is this fine distinction. And I mean, this is if this if exegesis is surgery, this is the most intricate brain surgery. It's the most fine tuned distinction here. That ever could be made in my view. In this fine distinction. If it's not seen. If it's not seen. If righteousness by faith. Or justification by faith. Is not seen here. As being separated from the righteousness of God. Then the readers of Romans will conclude. That Paul is saying that only. And exclusively those who believe are saved. But this is not what Paul teaches. The living God. According to 1 Timothy 4.10. Remember on lesson number one. You can read it. Read it if you don't want to listen to it again. On the website. Tetelestai.org. Make sure it's a dot org because there's a lot of people saying a lot of nasty things about yours truly on other Tetelestai websites, which are not dot org. If it ain't dot org, it ain't the real thing. Dot org is like the commercial on television. Liberty, 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 whatever it is. Get sick of those commercials. It's in my head. But so is liberty. So that's okay. You can read in our first lesson that I said Timothy, the first and second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles are going to be strongly important, significant in the interpretation of Romans, like first Timothy 4.10, which says that the living God is the savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. It does not say exclusively. 
or only those who believe. That's what the righteousness of faith would say if it was distinguished from or if separated from the righteousness of God, the saving act of God in Christ as a justifier. That's what the RF would say. The living God is the savior of all human beings. That's first Timothy four ten. An oversight of this insight may lead the reader of Romans to quote Romans 10, nine to 13. You can read that on your own. You know where that is. They quote it in a way that seems to exclude those who do not call upon the Lord from salvation. It seems to include from exclude from salvation. Those who do not call upon the Lord. Even more, unfortunately, the reader of Romans who lacks the perception of the universal horizon of God's righteousness or the scope of his saving act and action may quote Romans 10, 9 to 10 as the argument that not only is human believing required for salvation, but then they got to go to this. So is human confession. You have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Now there's a slippery slope. You just hit a slippery slope because now you're back into a works oriented righteousness, which is, well, I'll just be gentle. It makes you an enemy of the cross of Christ. I bet Jim remembers the time I preached that at a tent meeting somewhere. So, they quote Romans 10, 9 to 13. They quote 10, 9 to 10 as the argument that not only is human believing required for salvation, but so is human confession. This is the thinking that starts down a slippery slope of another kind of works righteousness. Which denies the grace of God and opposes the cross of Christ just as much as the pseudo gospel of the law works gospel. That recognizes that Jesus died, but though he died, you got to work. Or you got to keep believing. And there's the idea that if you keep believing till the end of your life, then you can have salvation. But if any time you stop believing, well, you're damned. To further complicate the problem, some groups add ritual baptism as a requirement for salvation. No. Are there such groups? Mm Mm-hmm. Others attribute salvation to the believer's perseverance in believing until the end of his or her life. Like I said, slippery slope. Let's take another look at this chapter and view it in the context of Romans chapter 9 through 11, that whole section and greater in the context of Romans, the epistle in total. Let's look at it real quick. Romans 10, 1 to 4, Paul, Paul, brackets, Paul, colon. He's speaking. Yes, I'm going to do the whole of Romans, and I'll tell you who's speaking at least 
my take on who's speaking at what time. You really have to know this. You really have to know this. Otherwise, you'll be quoting, as a famous preacher quoted, they'll be quoting the so-called new perspective, which is nothing more than the perspective of the missionary opponents of Paul in Galatia. For example, brothers and sisters in 10.1, the desire of my heart and my petition to God for Israel regards their salvation. In other words, he knows they're going to be saved, all of them. Romans 11.26, he knows that. But he wants them to know it now. He wants them to have the experience of that salvation now, just like you do for people you love. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God but that it's not according to knowledge because that's knowledge is an insight of the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness of God, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, because being ignorant of God's righteousness, there it is. God's righteousness, God's righteousness, God's saving act in Christ for all of his creation, being ignorant of that, which is apocalypse by Paul's gospel and by desiring to establish their own righteousness. They have not been subordinated to God's righteousness for Christ is. And I put this in brackets rightly perceived as the end of the law. Tell us Namu Christ is tell us Namu end of the law as a means for rectitude as a means for justification or God-approved livingness. Christ is the end. Christ is perceived as the end of the law, as a means for righteousness by everyone who believes. Everyone who believes, who has had the faith evoked in them at the gospel, believes that Christ ended any striving for righteousness by the law. But they also come to believe, eventually, hopefully, that our human act of believing doesn't result in righteousness or justification before God either. Moses now speaks. Moses. For Moses writes of the righteousness that is of the law. The righteousness that is of the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now, this was misquoted and misused by the opponent of Paul and the opponent. This is they make it sound like the gospel is if you do these things, you'll have life. You'll you'll have eternal life by doing them. Now, Moses simply said, hey, you want to live? You want to you want to do the law? You want to do the law? Then you're going to live by the law. And Jesus said something similar. You want to live by the sword? You'll die by the sword. Now the righteousness of faith comes in. RF comes in. Or we could even say the justification by faith crowd. We could say much of the Reformation crowd. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks this way, Paul says. The righteousness that comes from... Now you say, well, that's what Paul preaches, the righteousness that comes from faith. No, he doesn't. He speaks of the righteousness of God... From faith to faith. The righteousness that comes from faith speaks this way. It says, do not say in your heart, speaking of Deuteronomy 9, 4, just because someone quotes the scripture doesn't mean they quoted it. 
in the right context with the right direction. For example, oh, let me think. Who could it be? Satan. In Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and Luke 4, 1 through 11. Angels will bear you up. It says it that that's Psalm one ninety one. They'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So jump. Wrong application. Who quoted that verse? Let me see. Could it be? Never mind. Verse six. The righteousness come from faith now is speaking. Don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. Into Sheol, that means, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, I like what they're saying so far, because if you are saying that you're justified by something other than God, what God can do, you're saying that somehow you can go up to heaven to bring Christ down or down into the grave to bring him up. God did both. God sent his son down and raised his son up from death. That's God's job. But what does it say? Verse 8. What does what say? The righteousness of faith. It says, he's still speaking here, RF is still speaking, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Who's Paul talking about here? Paul isn't saying which we proclaim, meaning me and my missionary friends. He's saying that which the righteousness of faith proclaims. Paul doesn't proclaim the word of faith. You know what he proclaims? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else. How's that? Well, that evokes faith. Yes, it does. But the righteousness of faith. Now, this is now segregated from the righteousness of God. Which we, the righteousness of faith crowd, preaches. Paul doesn't preach the word of faith, but Jesus Christ and his faithfulness, according to the apocalypse of a mystery, as we'll see in Romans 16, 25, the righteousness of faith then is still speaking. Who's still speaking here in Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, the Lord as Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Down the road, you will be. And that's what some of these heavyweight scholars actually believe. They call it the new perspective. They mean that if you believe in Christ and keep believing, it's going to amount to inspiring you to do a lot of good things in your service for Christ. And that will result in the last judgment, God justifying you. Only then he justifies you. He calls you righteous. He calls you faithful at the end because of your lifelong performance. That's what scholars are saying. But that's what the new preachers said in Galatia. That's what they were saying in Galatia. So this is just a variation on that theme. The righteousness of faith says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord as Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So people attack my brother Mars, for example, or other believers, other men and women who understand the gospel of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. And they use this verse. 
as if to say people who don't do this are going to go to hell. Don't you know that? You're a heretic. You're an angel of light. You're this, you're that, you're everything under the sun. You're going to be embarrassed someday, accuser. You're going to be embarrassed someday. So let me just warn you, you're going to be embarrassed someday. So, if you confess with your mouth the Lord is Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him dead, you will be saved. This is the future tense. You will be saved. When? What does Paul say, though? Does Paul, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2.8? He tells a people, a group of pagans that suddenly had the revelation of Jesus Christ come to them and they found themselves alive in Christ who were dead in trespasses and sins. What did Paul say to them? By grace, you have been saved. You have been saved. Not you will be saved because you confess. Not you will be saved because you believe in your heart. And you really have to make sure that you believe with all your heart. And it's a real, real strong faith with feeling and surrender and all the rest of this stuff. No. By grace... You have been saved. What grace is that? It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his generous act of self-giving in love on the cross in your behalf. By grace, you have been saved. Even now. Through a faithfulness that's not your own. Whose is it then? Let me think. Christ's faithfulness it's the gift of god not of works lest anyone should boast and that eradicates not only law works but works including the act of believing because i believed in jesus christ and therefore god justified me is boasting it's nothing more than boast it's a you're a braggart Here's my testimony. Christ died for me and rose from the dead. And so I'm justified. So, we're saved by grace. For with the heart, who's speaking here? Who's speaking here? The righteousness of faith personified. We could say the justification by faith crowd if you want. If I may be bold. For with the heart a person believes unto righteousness. With the mouth one confesses unto salvation. That's, where does Paul say that? Anywhere else. Anywhere else in the scripture, where does Paul say that? Where does Paul agree with what that says right there? Nowhere. He never says, confess with your mouth and you will future be saved. Never says that. Who says that? My fundamentalist Christian friends say it. Interesting. And they attack someone who sees the vista of God's salvation in Christ going everywhere to everybody by grace. What are you attacking when you do that? So. Now he quotes the scripture. Paul's quoted this already. Whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. This is still not Paul. He quoted it before. In another context, in Romans 9, in the context of faith being the gift of God, which saves us from embarrassment. This guy, 
the righteousness of faith. So Paul is actually agreeing with James here. He's not saying you're justified by faith alone. He's saying you're justified by Christ alone. And faith perceives that. So, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. Quoting Isaiah 28, 16. The righteousness of faith is still speaking. Now, the righteousness of faith thinks that if you don't preach to people, they'll go to hell. So the onus is on you. The onus is on the preacher. The onus is on the Christian. The onus is on the witness. And so you go to your neighbor thinking you, they're going to go to hell if you don't witness to them. And the way you witness to them makes them feel like hell has already come to them in the form of you. And they might even say a sinner's prayer just to get you off their front porch or out of their kitchen or to stop drinking your Corona lights. Now, so, oh, but you would never drink a Corona light because you wouldn't be saved then, would you? Or you wouldn't be sure you were saved then. Now, for there is no difference between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is rich toward all those who call upon him. Now, that, that's, a, that's a generous way of saying something. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you call on him, he'll be generous to you. Like he wasn't generous to us when he gave his son. Righteousness of faith is still speaking. Consequently, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? What, I, what is my neighbor going to do if it's not for me? Now, they're mixing in some verses here. Moreover, how will they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how timely is the arrival of the feet who proclaim good things. That's a great verse in a context that's proper. Isaiah 52, 7, Nahum 1, 15. But here's the objection that this other guy has to Paul. But not all have believed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. Isaiah 53, 1. Therefore, faith, meaning here, the faith that saves, comes from the report to be heard. The report that is the word about Christ falls on the ears and enters the heart of the hearer. So, RF actually ends with an objection. It goes all the way back to the answer, the question and answer posed by Paul in Romans 3, 3. What if some did not believe? What's that going to do now? Is that going to nullify God's faithfulness? Of course not. In Romans 9, 6 is echoed. What if some do not believe? Paul answered, this doesn't mean that God's faithfulness or God's word has failed. The RF section, 10.6 to 17, concludes with the declaration that faith comes from the gospel of Christ, from hearing the gospel, with the intention of saying that not all will hear, and therefore not all will believe. So the onus or the responsibility of this reasoning is put on the preacher at first glance, but a closer look puts the blame on God for not sending enough preachers. Now, there's going to be millions of people in hell. Is it because you didn't witness? No, ultimately, it's because God didn't send. God's fault. 
What does Paul say? I love what he does here in verse 18. But I, Paul say, but adversative, contrary to you, RF speaking. Did they really not hear? Did they really not hear? The people that you say don't believe, haven't heard. Did they really not hear? That is, did, is it really the case of those who don't hear because they haven't heard a preacher? He said, on the contrary, yes, they have. What? what do you, wait a minute. You're saying to people, what about the people that never heard? They have heard. Why? Because Christ's faithfulness envelops all of creation and all of humanity, and his faith counts for our salvation and theirs, even if they never heard. That's what he's saying. The act of salvation has happened. The act of salvation was finished when Christ said finished, and it was demonstrated and dramatically given a receipt by God with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He said, yes, they have heard. What about the people who never heard? They have. Well, Paul does not mean that they have literally heard the gospel, but that all have as good as have heard, because the whole world will be and has been saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, what does Paul do? He comes in with psalms, Torah, and prophets, just like Jesus in his post-resurrection rap session on the road to Emmaus. He speaks from Moses, rightly understood. He speaks from the Psalms, rightly applied, and all the prophets, rightly applied, which even Peter got right in Acts 3.21, saying that they all univocally with one voice speak of one thing, and that's the restoration of all things. Now Paul says, yes, they have heard because, he says, their voice has gone into all of the earth. That's like Jeremiah 9.24, the righteousness of God in all the earth. Their voice has gone. He's quoting now Psalm 19.4. Their voice has gone into all the earth. Paul is showing the horizon of God's salvation being as wide as his creation. In fact, his salvation is a new creation. Verse 19, he doubles up on it. But I, Paul, say... Did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, now Paul uses Moses against Moses, which means he's using Moses rightly understood against Moses wrongly cited by the false preacher. But I say, did not Israel understand? First, Moses said this. He quotes Moses creatively and correctly here. I will make you jealous by those who are not even a nation, Gentiles, pagans, and, provi- and provoke you to anger. How does God provoke his own people, Israel, to anger? By the law. By the law comes wrath. The wrath 
is produced by the law. Because people who think they're doing the law, or people who think they're saved because they confessed Jesus, got baptized, went down an aisle, gave up cigarettes and Jack Daniels, did all this stuff, they think they get angry at you because you didn't do all that. Because it's a new kind of law now. Only it's kind of worse. It's more insidious because it involves Christian things like baptism and witnessing and prayer and worship and the four things and the five things and the 10 things and the slippery slope is the 500. Oh, no, the 613 things, just like Moses law. You call yourself a Christian. You're damn right. I do. But I, Paul, say, did not as I will make you jealous, Moses is speaking, Yahweh speaking through Moses. I'll make you jealous by those who aren't even a nation. You know why? I'm going to save them by the faithfulness of my son and by grace and then put them right in your face and have you say, what? How come that happened? And you're provoked to jealousy. I want what they have, although I'll never admit it. Liberty, freedom, transformation, grace. Assurance, love. By a nation that's void of understanding. Then Isaiah backed him up very boldly. Backed up who? Moses. Isaiah rightly quoted here. Rightly quoted as a representative of all the prophets. Backing up Moses of the Torah. Backing up the Psalms which speak of the voice of God's glory going into all the earth, and Paul relating that to the gospel, the sweep of it, gathering all of creation. Isaiah backed him up very boldly, and that's where I am tonight, very bold in the spirit, saying, quote, I was found by those who were not seeking me. It goes back to the end of Romans 9. I was found by those who were not seeking me, Gentiles. I revealed myself, apocalyptically revealed myself to those who were not asking. People saying, oh, those Jews are very zealous for God. They're seeking him. They're doing sacrifices. They're doing all these things. They're obeying all these mandates. They're not touching corpses. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. They're chaste people. They're this people. They're that people. I wonder if they find God. As for me, says the Gentile, I don't give a damn about God. I don't care about God. I don't want to know him. And then they bump into him and they go, oh, thanks. Thanks for the grace. But to Israel, he says in verse 21, Yahweh says, through Isaiah all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people why are they disobedient and why are they defiant because they're trying to seek to provide and establish their own righteousness follow the arrows though Romans 11 28 to 32 Romans 11 33 to 36 Romans 16 25 to 27 now if you have to go go because I'm going to finish with 10 quick points if you have to go go because it's past 8 Go ahead. As Frazier would say, off you go. You can call this the end of the message if you want. But in everything Paul has said in Romans, including everything he said in Romans 9 and 10, 
he has steadfastly maintained the universal horizon of the salvation that the living God has enacted in Christ in the flesh. He enacted it in Christ in the flesh and he still enacts it in the spirit of Christ in individual cases. Paul has steadfastly allowed the righteousness of God to be apocalyptically revealed from God's faithfulness in Christ to Christ's faithfulness in his people as God approved livingness. The apocalypse stands out against any other righteousness that must be enacted by the creature rather than the creator. Romans 10 does not deviate from this apocalypse. It merely shows 10 things. One, Christ and his faithful death has both fulfilled the righteousness required by the law and ended the law as a means or a process leading to justification or God-approved livingness. Two, human believing or our faith or our act of believing gifted to us by the message about Christ has to do with God approved livingness as a participation in Christ's own faithfulness, which is called the obedience of faith. This means that what Christ has done or what God has done in Christ produces the effect that would have to be accomplished by preachers and witnesses and by people hearing and believing three, those who believe understand by faith we understand remember Hebrews 11 3 those who believe understand or perceive that they are justified by Christ's faithfulness Four, those who believe perceive or understand the gospel as the power of God for salvation the gospel as the power of God for salvation five all creation has in effect heard and therefore is swept up into Messiah's saving fidelity. Six, faith is the gift of God and the means of perception of God's great love and universal mercy. Seven, faith is involved, as we've seen Sunday mornings, in a God-approved livingness and life and lifestyle that is free from law observance. Eight, all of creation is included in the scope of God's salvific activity. God saves all. Paul has steadfastly maintained the truth of that gospel all the way through, even in Romans 10. Nine, historically speaking, speaking in terms of history itself, not eschatologically, in agreement with a very bold Isaiah. The Gentiles who have not sought God have been found by him. And Israel in the main remains defiant and unconvinced of God's grace in Christ Jesus, historically speaking. But that's going to end as Paul, again, you've got to shoot the arrow all the way through Romans 11. That's what we'll do in the closing moments of Romans, the epistle. 10, faith. That is a participation in Messiah Jesus faithfulness, also known as a faith that works by love. Galatians 2.20 and 5.6 constitutes God-approved livingness. And this is just the obedience of faith. 
And it is also God approved living this, which the grace and the apostleship given to Paul is intended by God to bring about in all the nations. In other words, Paul preached the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith as a God approved livingness of life and peace in those who receive the gospel. What is decidedly not God approved livingness is obedience or observance of the commandments of the law. And therefore, our approved lifestyle as those to whom God has revealed his son is a participation in Messiah's fidelity. In other words, it's this. It's God in you, both willing and working toward his own good pleasure. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into the scriptures. We understand that when Paul wrote an epistle, he expected it to be read and studied with great industriousness and repetition and that's what we're doing here obedient to that mandate we pray that you'll grant us understanding by these words that you'll grant also an expansion of this message in many places through what we're about to offer you through a sacrifice of substance we ask this in christ's name amen